As you can see, the lifeline is divided into two polar extremes, fear and love. Fear is in the negative energy spectrum, and love is in the positive energy spectrum. Oh, duh. Excuse me? No, duh is a product of fear. Now, on each card is a character dilemma which applies to the lifeline. Please take this. Thank you. Please read each character dilemma aloud and place an X on the lifeline in the appropriate place. Sharita? Juanita has an important math test today. She has known about the test for several weeks, but has not studied. In order to keep from failing her class, Juanita decides that she will cheat on the math test. Good, good, very good. Uh, Mr. Darko. Ling Ling finds a wallet on the ground filled with money. She takes the wallet to the address on the driver's license but keeps the money inside the wallet. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Ms. Farmer. I don't get this. Just place an X on the lifeline in the appropriate place. No, I mean, I, I know what to do. I just I don't get this. You can't just lump things into two categories. Things aren't that simple. The lifeline is divided that way. Well, life isn't that simple. I mean, who cares if Ling Ling returns the wallet and keeps the money, has nothing to do with either fear or love. Fear and love are the deepest of human emotions. Okay, but you're not listening to me. There are other things that need to be taken into account here, like the whole spectrum of human emotion. You can't just lump everything into these two categories and then just deny everything else. If you don't complete the assignment, you'll get a zero for the day. Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host, Mike. And today, for episode two, we're talking Donnie Darko. I don't think there is a second Donnie Darko or anything related to it, so, so I don't even need to specify which one. This was my first viewing, Mike. What about yourself? Oh, no. Um, I Well, I don't want to say I was an early adopter. I did watch it through um, very early, like... I guess torrenting means I don't actually, I guess it wasn't even torrenting. It was probably like those like Napster style programs. That's technically that's okay. You know, peer to peer sharing um, yeah, where the video torrenting. quality was not that great. And it was also divided into like multiple parts <laughs> because oh, back, in the, back in those yes. days, you know, the file size. Yeah. Uh, but I was excited about it and I do not think in its uh, initial theatrical run that it came my way. 
so yeah, I can play that hipster card that I was in on it even before like the midnight showing <laughs> started, but I can't be so hip as to say that I was a huge fan. It was more like, huh, that was kind of interesting, but I was not one of the people that started watching it over and over again and told my friends you had to see it. It actually wasn't until the director's cut came out, the like double disc in like 2005, and that's when I started passing around and talking about it more. So a little bit of both. I was cool for a brief moment, and then I went back <laughs> to being decidedly uncool, which is my natural state. <laughs> I was yeah I was never cool enough to appreciate Dying Order even though I remember a field trip I think oh my gosh uh, in the ninth grade uh, back back in the uh, we we had a choice of uh, the teachers like well we've got a Donnie Darko here and somebody uh, submitted that we can put on I guess they didn't know what it was about oh my god or. <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, oh, Secret oh. of the Ooze. And I was very much a Secret of the Ooze fan. <laughs> but I think Dying Darko eventually get, uh, uh, I got outvoted by everybody. And it played, and I didn't. I don't remember too much. I just remember the, the uh, uh, overweight Chinese girl being made fun of. For whatever reason, that really stuck out in my mind. Um Maybe because I related to it in some way, perhaps. Uh, the only minority in the films getting attacked. Uh, I, I, I connected. Um, other than that, I had no idea. Uh, I just know that there was a rabbit involved, and, and there was some kind of a skull uh, um, icon on, on the rabbit's face. Hey, just just through the movie poster, perhaps. I So this is my first viewing, and I'm finally glad that I got it over with. And I don't mean over with. Like, hold on, hold on. Whoa, whoa. Are you putting I'm this on glad- the uh, Boondock Saints type level of like, okay, internet, fine. I watched it. Which I have not, by the way. I've never seen Boondock Saints. It's... Uh... I, you know, it's weird. Like, I think we all have those uh, blind spots in our um, movie viewing um, checklist that we have. But I'm glad I got to – what I really mean is I'm glad I got to check this off the list. And actually, um, after watching it, I immediately started it over again and listened to the director's commentary with uh, um, Richard Kelly and Kevin Smith. And then – after I was done with that, oh, I took a nap. And then after I woke up from the nap, I, I watched the uh, documentary as well called The Philosophy of Donnie Darko, which has nothing to do with anything philosophical. It's just, it's just a standard behind the scenes. A very very much uh, um, self-congratulatory, a lot of pat on the backs uh, um, in that one. I, I, I feel like I'm going to complain a lot <laughs> about oh, this okay. film. It might be because I'm not 14, anymore it might be that because i've just viewed films up in my lifetime at this point where no longer kind of the revelation that maybe it was when it first came out did you like it when you first saw it versus uh and what is your thoughts about it now look i had a hard time with this one this week um Uh, like I, I'm trying not to put it in base terms, but like you, you've already brought up the old versus young dynamic, but I in turn have like <laughs> I've countered that, or I tried to counter it by saying, "Look, <laughs> when I was a teenager the first time, it was more of like a huh, all right, on to the next. That was kind of that was worth my time, but I didn't I didn't get on message boards, <laughs> I didn't go to the the interactive website. I actually have never been that guy. Like I had friends who really got into the Blair witch project 
and like looking at all the, like the extra stuff online, which was you know really cool marketing, but it is marketing. Um, and like the closest maybe was like Lost, I would say uh, that I got into, but that was that was week to week. Like there was something that was like to pass the time before the next episode, and it was kind of cool to keep that going. Um, whereas I always see these things as like, these are finished products, but <clears throat> excuse me, I, uh, I mentioned the director's cut, which is what I watched this time because after that came out, I sort of saw it as like, well, and you know, I've talked about that off mic where it's like, well, the, this is what Richard Kelly wants. That's what I'm, that's what I'm going to watch. Like, especially if we're going to discuss it. Okay. I'll comment on that in a second, <laughs> but yeah, go on. But I, and I didn't go back and revisit the theatrical version, but I watched it with my wife, who was maybe gonna halfway in and out, mostly out on this like nonsense. Like she actually mirrored <laughs> yeah. my response initially yeah. of like, "Huh, well, that was kind of, I guess that was kind of interesting. That was kind of weird." But moved on with her life seconds later. Um, <laughs> from as I recall, the theatrical version is far stranger and less handholding. Like you do not have the, uh, the chapters, the, the, like the literal chapters from the book that kind of oh, set okay. up the different yeah. time, the sequences and the rules of what's happening, which is kind of filled in. It feels a little bit like a cheat. Um, and I actually, and I'm kind of interested in going back to watch the theatrical version now. Cause it feels like the director's cut is something the studio would want to like, all right, you gotta explain what's going on. Like, you know, make him a superhero. Where you right. have a literal like Donnie Darko, that's a weird name, sounds like a superhero. You know, you are announcing like, oh, it's this type of movie. And I don't remember the theatrical version being like that. It was it was like the uh the training wheels since they came out maybe the same <laughs> month for like Mulholland Drive. Cause though I think that I remember those two very close together, and I'm like, oh, this is like <laughs> Maybe your your school system was right. This is like the middle school, high school version of Mall and Drive, and you throw it on there, you know, so you can prep yourself. Uh, I I'm not going to be as negative as you in that. Um, what I really had was nostalgia uh, for for the film going experience where one movie could so like define people's like enthusiasm for a long period of time. Uh, which does not seem to be the case in like our, our current streaming environment because there's just so much stuff you can just move on to. You're not going to hang on to that one disc and play it over and over again. And get, like you even mentioned, getting into the commentary tracks and all that stuff, it's so time consuming. Uh, I can't imagine younger generations really having the time or having the inclination to to stick with something for that long. I'm also saying I'm no better now. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the, the the reason that I was able to even do that is my wife said, "Oh, I'm going to sleep with the, you know our daughter tonight." So I was like, "Oh, because that means I have a whole evening that I can <laughs> really dig into and do my homework." So I, I don't know if she should ever she should never listen to that sound you just made of excitement of being left alone <laughs> for an evening. <laughs> I'm Dr. Chumley. I was like, I just need two weeks. I just need two weeks in Akron.
I wanted to listen to the commentary track. What was the, I? I remember Kevin Smith joins him on it, and 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 this is pre Weed Kevin, and and those. The, the, I feel like it's mm-hmm. it's a rare little gem uh, to listen to that, and also just to see if he does go into it. Like after I finished watching it, I was like, this is just a bunch of stuff that he filmed, and he is <laughs> keeping his fingers crossed. <laughs> That there is some connective tissue that goes from beginning to middle to end, and at the end he can kind of play off the uh, "What did you think it means? I think you're all right," which is something that he mentions in the commentary. Like anytime I'm asked that, it's like, "Well, we're all right about whatever it means," and, and he does mention the superhero stuff, uh, which is so weak because he doesn't read comic books, and I guess that's why Kevin was there. Like maybe he can explain what I'm talking about up here. It's a film that I think is interesting, um, and and one of the things that it does really well is it creates images that are going to stick with you. Um, the the scene in the uh, theater where he's watching um, Donnie is watching uh, the Evil Dead with the Jenna Malone character, and then you've got Frank the bunny there. I, that's a really great scene, and and the reveal that it's just this guy under the mask with this disfigurement. Like that kind of stuff really sticks with you. Um, and so I will give Richard Kelly all the credit in the world. He was a young buck, like what, 23, 24 when he made this film. This film can only be made by a young guy that has like nothing to lose. Orson Welles, when he talked about Citizen Kane, he was like, well, we didn't know what we were doing. We we just like, nobody told us that you can't film a scene like that. It's like, eh, we're just going to do it. And they revolutionized film. Yeah, well, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to try to touch <laughs> that example, but the one that comes to mind that's <laughs> closer in proximity as far as release to Donnie Darko is Magnolia, which in uh, recent interviews, I, I say recent, maybe within the last five years, but I, I remember Paul Thomas Anderson, I think it was on with Mark Maron, uh, mm-hmm. who was kind of trying to walk up to the line of like saying Magnolia, I didn't care for it. <laughs> Like, but being polite to this, you know, artist that he's interviewing, and it was weird to hear Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, you know, almost two day, two decades after the fact, be like, "Oh, I would never make that now." Like, "Oh, I'd cut twenty minutes of it, a half hour be gone." Like, uh, you would do this, and I'm like, "Wow, I don't know if that makes it better." Like, I kind of like that. I, you know, I saw what like the twenty eight year old guy would do because it, it, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe the newer version, the more adult version, would be more refined less messy but magnolia is messy and i Donnie darko i yeah. think is a messy movie it is uh i actually now now i'm just holding the director's cut maybe against it more so than i should that it's like <laughs> maybe it was better as a more defined mess that the theatrical experience was that's that's kind of interesting you should say that because they asked uh um, richard kelly the producers and whatnot like hey do you want to uh, uh do a director's cut and it took him and and um uh, uh, his people like three or four months to figure out what they were gonna do. It's not like <laughs> there's like my vision wasn't on screen. Like it's it's kind of like they had to go back to the version that they uh, submitted for Sundance, and then they had to get cut after nobody cared for it really. They're like it was fifty fifty, I guess. But they had trouble. That's the only time, by the way, in the whole film's production there was any trouble is getting it sold and and out to the people because they had this is. This is not an independent film. I'm sorry. I know it's not a lot of best. It's a four and a half million dollar budget. You've got Drew Barrymore as executive producer. I knew there was going to be some, you know, shade thrown at this movie for having the audacity to be an an indie darling that has one of Charlie's Angels in it. 
Chris Nolan was a like a, a a champion of the film too. He was like, yeah, I think I, th- I think it's great. I think it should be seen. You know, he's got a lot of people behind the film. Hey, Ford Hamlet, like, come on, look at Slacker. How much was that? Like twenty eight thousand dollars. Like uh, Clerks was also thirty two, thirty six thousand. Um, El Mariachi came around the same time. Those are independent <laughs> films. This is not. I'm sorry. Like it's four and a half million bucks, and maybe it doesn't translate to what it. Uh, what it could buy now versus what it could have bought in 2001. But in my opinion, it just doesn't feel like an indie production to me. The, the guy who who shot the film, the DP, he 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 was a DP with Ridley Scott on Blade Runner. Come on, man. This ain't no independent film. All right. John <laughs> Cassavetes isn't mortgaging his house to get his shit filmed. Man. You know, it's like, Look, maybe, maybe the guy who shot Blade Runner thinks he has really fallen on hard times. He's like, what am I doing? <laughs> This guy's talking about a rabbit, and you got this little punk kid, like, time travel, I guess. Uh, his girlfriend from Stepmom, like, you know, having to reject his awkward kisses. Like, is, what am I shooting here? You know, um, and ultimately, I, I don't fall – I'm not one of those guys who needs to figure out what the plot is and connect everything because I genuinely don't think that's what it's about. It really – it's about atmosphere and mood. Okay, and- getting more positive because I thought you were going to say – because I genuinely don't care. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have one. the character is a paranoid schizophrenic the main character and so when you have a character who is damaged in that way you can kind of get away with filming whatever because it can all be explained by oh well he's paranoid schizophrenic it's just a representation of what's happening in his head or you know whatever and so it's kind of a little mini cheat um, in my opinion when you have something like that or you write something like that but there are good he talks uh, um uh, Richard Kelly talks about how he was playing with uh, different like fa- familial archetypes, and uh, we are like g- having a Maggie Gyllenhaal there. Um, their dynamic that's already very organic. And so it's like I I get what he's trying to do. Oh, I, um, I love the parents. I actually love the family yeah. life here. I think those were very good. Yeah. They subvert your expectation uh, because while you may revel somewhat in. Uh, in seeing a Donnie Darko character take on uh, the religious right. I was about to say far right, but I'm like, well, no, in 2020 terms, it's not, we're not quite there yet. As far as, uh, you know, this, this teacher that wants to bring in this motivational speaker played by Patrick Swayze, which I was like, good Lord, what was the budget yeah. of this school? You got a, you got the a good looking man coming in to, to do these little exercises with the class. Um, I, you know, and I found myself smirking. Uh, and <laughs> I, look, admittedly, and I'm I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here because there's some some small degree of shame and also pride. 
I was very close to like some of the outbursts of Donnie Darko here, and especially in the school <laughs> setting, because yes, yeah, I, I think it's not it's not out, that outside the norm for your, especially your adolescent years, for you to be far more mouthy. Although, look at us now, Web, we're talking to each other and tin cans over the internet for hours on end so maybe not but uh far more aggressive in uh the rightness of our opinions which is usually all they are it's just an opinion now this imaginary friend here this rabbit does lead him on some uh quest of justice like when the poor sways is revealed to be uh, a pedophile and in some sort of child pornography ring but <laughs> did donnie know that no, I just didn't like the guy. I just want to set his house on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? That's what you say that. But what was the end game for Frank? Again, I don't want to get into plot, but you, you mentioned that. It's like, wasn't the whole point to end the world? Like, that's what, like, is Frank a benevolent spirit here trying yes. to get him to yeah. save the world? Yeah. He, he is. Yeah. If uh, So... And I, I hate going to this because this is actually an element that I, I feel myself disliking now uh, with the director's cut, with the, 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 the chapters and the rules kind of filling in the gaps. So the uh, I guess the, the, the people who um, have experienced death in this sort of alternate reality are um, – I mean – what, they're like NPCs in a video game, like really overbearing NPCs, like quest givers. So you do find, I feel like the Frank character and the Jenna Malone character maybe acting outside of what you would expect someone to have as far as like a, uh, a vested interest in Donnie and okay. his pursuits, because it seems like they're the two that are most directly affected, right? In the, the sort of time loop by the outcome yeah. of it. So yeah. um, and th there is this whole... You know, I, 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 it's unfair for me to keep comparing it to Mulholland Drive. Uh, so anyone <laughs> listening to movie podcasts is already probably like scoffing. But there is this decaying effect on all the characters in this like small community, like this sort of ominous feeling that everything is going to shit, and they all seem to have accepted it. Like you have this, I really like the the mother here because you can tell she's, you know progressive and kind of combative but also is like trying to stick with societal norms as far as what's reasonable as far as you know don't don't tell this older lady even though if, if she's a horrible person and i disagree with her political mm -hmm. views don't tell her to shut <laughs> things up her anus <laughs> like, right. we, and uh, there's a great scene with her and the uh, the dad at uh like an evening away and they're both not talking to each other because they're both concerned they they love their son and she she says something to the effect of i think that's maybe a line we can set for our kid is to not <laughs> to have him like telling people to shove things up their ass and you know the dad you know he tries to play it off he tries to like you know bring them back to like you know we, we love our son and we'll we'll figure this out this is not right. uh, but everyone seems to have that sort of heaviness even drew Barrymore, who you hate uh being represented here in independent <laughs> film <laughs> you know her world quickly collapses and I, that's like seems like a big gap like we go from her Teaching this these these writings uh, that seem to uh, well I, I guess the idea is that um, she's encouraging the kids to do damaging things acts of vandalism through this story and of course 
Donnie and Frank are seeing are really putting the screws to her by doing just that. <laughs> uh, but there's, you know, I mean, there's a huge jump from that to like, don't teach that material anymore, especially in this time. Uh, teach the book about the rabbits uh, to her being fired. And I like I found that jarring. But when I thought about it in the sense that uh, everything is becoming really oppressive here. And I, I do think that helps with it being set in the 80s, which I think at the time of this film's release probably felt far more conservative than what we'd experienced in the prior decade. Uh, boy, did he not know what was coming with uh, George Bush coming into power, what the 2000s were going to look like. And right. certainly now I kind of dug it. I, I dug that, as I said, the decaying nature of everything. But it really plays to a young person's mentality that my life has no meaning. And as soon as I find any semblance of meaning, then I'm going to like sink my teeth into it. And in this case, it's sacrificing yourself so that the, the world can live. That's right. Very Christ-like, I... Richard Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. I think this is this is why it's, it's definitely uh, written, directed, everything by young men because there's a lot of ideas in these young individuals. They, they want to throw as much of it on the screen as possible and hope hopefully something sticks. Um, I will mention Mulholland Drive one more time, and not because I have something to say about it, but one of the talking heads on the documentary about this film mentioned that, well, it's possible that Mulholland Drive got a lot of praise, and then our film came out, and it was very similar, so he kind of threw Mulholland Drive under the bus. It wasn't as... Mulholland, dude, Mulholland Drive is one of the best films of the 21st century. Like, I, you know, I, it's, you'd be hard-pressed to find... I think people who are very serious about film to not at least admit that Mahalan Drive is up there. Um, even even of all time, I think people really do love that film, as, as do I. But and and I'm not saying Donnie Darko isn't Look, good or bad. For it's a just, time, Donnie Darko, it seemed had surpassed Mahalan Drive, like in, in in film circles. Now I'm talking about I'm talking about the George Bush years, the 2000s and mid 2000s to about 2010. But it was strange watching this. That's why I said I, I, it was enjoyable in that nostalgic feeling because I had not checked out in a long time. And I wonder if there are a lot of the, the super fans that, you know, this was like their, you know, their favorite high school band. or And they have fond memories of how important that was, like maybe getting them into film uh, or that being something that they have. They had a lot of conversations with. It's a conversation starter uh, even though on this podcast, it seems to be a conversation ender for you where you're like, all right, <laughs> enough of this, finally. <laughs> I don't think that we can sit here and, and really unravel the film and deconstruct it and put it together and be like, this is what it means. I'm not as interested in talking about that. I'm I'm more interested in our reactions to it and, and kind of the – how the film kind of came to be. And and I'm more interested in in that aspect of this film. I, I definitely think it's something that people should should watch once at least uh, to really appreciate um, the work being done. It is good work. I just I think I would have reacted differently having seen it um, earlier in my life. I, I kind of lament that uh, Richard Kelly himself seems. I don't know what he's been doing. I, I think I think he's done some writing work. I don't know if he's like script doctoring. I don't I don't know, but he's definitely not produced. Uh, you know, a Richard Kelly film as often as probably people would have expected or like when this became like, you know, uh, a video success, uh, this he didn't, you know, he, he kept telling certainly with Southland Tales distinctly his style of stories. I don't know if you ever saw the box. Did you ever see his attempt to do something a little more mainstream? I'm aware of 
Southland Tales in the box, but nothing, nothing past that. Sorry. You sound, you sound so old on this podcast. I'm aware that this man got a couple other jobs. I'm no longer interested in looking at his film application. I'm well, aware. he could. He could have gone back to the well and, and got his name on uh, S. Darko, I guess. Is that the, the follow? <laughs> he gets really mad, by the way, when people ask him about that. He's like, yeah, I have nothing to do with that movie. I, I do but, think yeah, it's, you know, it's it's kind of a little poor form. Like, I understand sequels to very successful things that, you know, the original filmmaker had nothing to do with. But <laughs> sequels to cult films that came became successful on dvd it does seem to be a low blow to the man where it's like you know <laughs> like to me southland tales is the donnie darko sequel because if you dug donnie darko he gets expand on that uh very similar kind of beats um but i i think what was lacking there and maybe what has stuck around with donnie darko is that the teen angst angle of it uh allows it I'm, I'm going to get into your lane here. It allows it to be kind of stupid and still be charming. <laughs> <laughs> when you, when you start bringing in uh, the, the war, uh, you know, the Iraq war in Southland tales and actually like adult subject matter, it's not as excusable, I guess, as uh, high school angst in eighties music. And, and you know, that's, that's something I think Richard Kelly's pulling from uh, like a person from his personal experiences. So during that time he can eloquently, um, put on screen uh, what he was feeling maybe around that time because I think all work has a little bit of autobiographical aspects to it. I'm sorry I made you watch this. <laughs> no, no, I am. I am very happy that I watched it. I'm very happy that it exists. I'm very happy that I got to learn about the film uh, through the documentary, and then I got to hear uh, Richard Kelly himself and Kevin talk about uh, about about the film on the commentary. So no, no, I'm I'm thrilled that it is now in my own personal um, film lexicon and I can discuss it with other people. Uh, and of course this is, we, I just saw it. Who knows uh, how I'm going to feel about it 10 years from now. My hope is that you're uh, running midnight screenings in the DC area. <laughs> <laughs> 10 years from now that you're trying to bring it back way after the people are like, I don't know, man, I was into that when I was in my twenties, but <laughs> this guy's really trying to get it going again. Knowing the Philistine I am might be doing that for S. Darko. I'd be like, you know, this is really underappreciated, guys. It really takes what was done here. 